The title of the message is, God will even use human sin and folly to make good on His promises. God will even use human sin and folly to make good on His promises. And, uh, you know, I was thinking in preparation for this message, since this is my first one at the church, you know, what could I say to break the ice? And um, what kind of joke could I crack? Uh, what kind of personal, you know, anecdote could I deliver? And every time I thought I had something, I would have this flashback. And, and it would be this image burned in my mind. And it's my own bald head and my own goofy face on like 20 of your all shirts. <laughs> and I just kept thinking, how do you top that? How do you break the ice with people who are willing to do that? Um, so in some weird way, thanks for breaking the ice already. It's probably the only church where nobody knew would need to do that. Um, but in all seriousness, I, I do want to thank you for just welcoming Kristen and I and our family to this church. Uh, your reception has been warm and affectionate, and we're just very, very thankful for that. Many of you were probably up late last night bringing the new year. You know, New Year's Day is one of those days that you, you take a deep breath and you breathe either a sigh of relief that the holidays are over, depending on how they went, or uh, maybe a sigh of satisfaction if they, if they went better, went great. Uh, maybe a little bit of a groan that work starts back tomorrow or, or Tuesday. It's back to the, the real world exactly a groan. There it is. Um, so if we can't, let's just start by praying and asking God that uh, he would start us off in 2012, give us refreshment, give us vision for the new year. And he would do that by revealing himself through his word this morning. Father, we, we come to you in humility. We have nothing to bring. We sang this morning on Christ, the solid rock. We stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. We pray that you would just start us off in this new year, Lord, by planting our feet firmly on Christ. Refresh us this morning through your word, we ask. Refresh our souls. Envision us for another year that you've, you've graciously given to us. And refresh us this morning, we pray, by just revealing yourself, Lord. Reveal yourself through your word. Give us the gift of illumination this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for technical, it, it actually was last year. We were in the book of Genesis, um, really only a few weeks ago, but it might, might feel like a year to you. If you remember, Genesis um, is a book about this good God who, who made a good creation, and he created mankind, that they would love him, trust him, glorify him, enjoy relationship with him. But instead of trusting God, mankind trusted the serpent, and sin entered the world in Genesis 3, and when sin entered the world, it affected absolutely everything for the worst. And right then, it should have been all over. In Genesis chapter 3, mankind should have been left to a, a future of, of misery and loneliness, destruction apart from God. But amazingly enough, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of a moment of judgment, God promises that one day one of Adam and Eve's offspring would come and defeat the serpent. 
And would you have thought that your own destiny would be bound up in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago? God made a promise that one day one of Adam and Eve's descendants would come and crush and defeat the serpent. And the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is about God's plan to fulfill that promise in Genesis 3. So the past few months we've been tracing and following this, this unique, this special family line. In the last few sermons we've been focusing on Jacob. Remember Seth gave way to Noah, Noah gave way to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. So we've been focusing on Jacob and God echoed the divine promise he made to Abraham when he appeared to Jacob at Bethel. In Genesis chapter 28, he said, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you, Jacob, shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. In the last sermon, if you remember, Jim Britt preached, it was, it was very fittingly called marital madness about Jacob's family. We saw that part of the promise from Bethel began to be fulfilled. At the end of that section, Jacob's got 11 sons. But it came through craziness, marital madness. If you remember, Jacob goes trying to find a wife, and he falls in love with Rachel. But who does he get on his wedding night? He gets Leah. So he has to work another seven years if he wants to have Rachel. Jacob plays favorites in his marriage, which is never good in the Bible when people play favorites. He loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. God gives Leah a bunch of babies. Rachel gets upset, jealous. She gets her, her own servant involved in her place so that she can have some kids too. So this, this almost birthing battle ensues to, to really settle the score between these two wives. Rachel at one point, if you remember, she even trades Jacob like he's a commodity. She, she trades him for this mandrake plant, probably in hopes that it would help her get pregnant. Rachel eventually does have a baby, Joseph, but this whole crazy scene, this marital madness closes, and before you know it, Jacob has 11 sons. And God is beginning to fulfill his promise to Jacob at Bethel that despite all the marital madness, God would make good on his promise. He would fulfill his promise to Jacob. And he begins to give him offspring. Jim said in his sermon, this phrase, it's just been stuck in my head since he said it. He said, God's grace takes on all comers. Remember that? God's grace takes on all comers. And it's a great picture for us to start with this morning. It's a great picture to keep in our minds as we continue to go through Genesis. See, God's promise that he made in Genesis chapter 3, that a descendant would come who would defeat the serpent, this promise is, is making its way, it's trekking its way through redemptive history. And it seems at every turn, this gracious promise is challenged by the sin and folly of you and I type people. Men and women who it seems will do anything to blow it, 
anything they can to derail the promise. But God's grace takes on all comers. Every time it's contended with, God's grace grabs the challenge, grabs the sin, grabs the folly by the horns and just wrestles it to the ground and uses it for the good of His people and to accomplish all of His purposes. God's grace takes on all comers. This morning, God's grace takes on more deception, more lying, more cheating, more manipulation. As we look at this portion of Jacob's life this morning, the impression we're going to walk away with, the big idea is this. God cares so much about making good on His promises. He will even use human sin and folly to do so. God cares so much about making good on His promises to His people. He will even use human sin and folly to do so. This morning, it's almost like a New Year's Day meditation on the character of God that's been displayed in Jacob's life as we've been seeing the past few weeks in Genesis. The extent to which God will go. There's no place God won't go. There's no sin, there's no folly He won't deal with. And that He won't even use to accomplish His purposes. If you've got a Bible, Genesis 30, we're going to start in verse 25. It's a shorter portion we're looking at this morning. You can keep it open, we can follow together. It'll be on the screen as well. We're going to see that Jacob begins to negotiate his way out of Padan Aram. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. So here we go. Jacob is trying to negotiate his way out of there. He's got a few years of marriage under his belt. He's got some kids, some offspring. And he wants to go home. He says in verse 25, Send me to my home and country. And remember, this has a double meaning for Jacob. It is his hometown. It's his stomping grounds. But it's also the land that God promised him. You've got to respect Jacob's move. He's, he's aggressive. You know, if you like negotiations, this is your time to enjoy this. He's aggressive. He doesn't ask any questions. Hey, will you let me go? He says, send me out of here. Look at the service I've given you, Laban. I want to go start my own family, my own thing, my own gig. Provide for my own family. Laban responds in verses 27 and 28. And if you're like me, you just have to appreciate Laban sometimes. Uh, You know, he's sort of the slimy guy. And he never fails to disappoint um, in his responses. He responds in verses 27 and 28. Listen to what he says. If I've found favor in your sight. Isn't that that a sweet way to put it? Right? Was Jacob Laban's superior? No. No. In this day and age, that's the way you talk to somebody who is above you. But Jacob's been below him for 14 years. So Laban's just buttering him up. I've learned that God's blessed me because of you. He learns by divination that Jacob has been a source of blessing to him. See, Laban, he should have been eager to send off his daughters and his grandchildren with some possessions, with something. He should have been eager to send them off so they could start living on their own. 
But we know Laban. He's self-serving. He cares about himself, and he really cares about money too. So he counter-offers, doesn't he? He says, name your wages, which is also hilarious. Did Jacob hear that before? Yeah. What did Jacob ask for? Rachel. What did he get? Leah. So I just, I just imagine, Laban, if I found favor in your sight, just name your wages. I mean, Jacob's probably thinking, give me a break. Get me out of here. So Laban counter-offers. Jacob's moved to leave. So Jacob's going to press him again. We're going to keep reading in verse 29. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he, Laban, said, What shall I give you? Now, Jacob just presses the issue again, appealing to his service and appealing to Laban's success. Jacob's made Laban rich. Jacob says, before I got here, he didn't have much. Since I came and started running this business, you're rich. You're a rich man. I've profited you now for years and years and years. Let me go and just profit myself and provide for my own household Build our own legacy. Look at verse 31. Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. Of course, Laban, he's just, what do you want? Laban's trying to do anything he can to get him to stay. Jacob says, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. Listen, what's, what's Jacob after? He wants his own possessions. He wants his own flock, a business. He wants to be positioned to leave and go provide for his own household. Remember, Jacob doesn't have anything. Who's profited from the past 14 years? Laban's profited. See, by law, Jacob could go. Was Jacob first or at all Laban's slave? No, he's his nephew. He's family. So by law, Jacob could go. But in real life, he doesn't have anything. What's he going to take with him? What's he going to start with? He's got no way to provide. He's got no money, no bank account, no savings, nothing. He's just been completely dependent on Laban. So Jacob, realizing his chances of being sent off by Laban are very slim, Jacob poses the solution. And the solution is this. He just, he's asking, can I just start my own shepherding business? Can I just moonlight? Can I start a side project? I'll keep watching your own flock and just let me on my free time. Let me start with a few of the spotted and speckled and I'll just start my own thing. And in the back of his mind, eventually he'd have something he could leave with so he could go back home and provide for his own family as his own resources increased. So the best option Jacob knows is just start his own business if he can. And Laban's thinking, this is a great deal. Because at this time, the speckled and spotted flock, those were the defects. Those were the lesser of the flock. Laban's thinking, 
So you're going you're gonna to keep watching mine. You're going to take out all the bad ones. This is a good deal. He says, good. Let it be exactly as you say. So the business deal is this. Jacob says to Laban, I want to start my own business. All right, I'm going to take all the defective flock, get my own thing going. Laban says, sounds great. All right, now watch what these guys do. These guys are knuckleheads. All right, verse 35. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Again, Laban is unbelievable. This is classic. Laban's, Laban's a business guy. This is a, this is a good deal for him, isn't it? In fact, commentators and historians say that if Jacob would have just taken a normal deal, he'd have gotten about 20% payment for his services. But in asking for the defects, he's going to get far less than 20. This deal's awesome for Laban. And he knows this. But what do you do if you're Laban and you've got a business deal that's heavily in your favor? What do you do? You cheat as soon as possible. You cheat as soon as possible. So Laban goes and he takes all the flock that should have been Jacob's and he puts them three days out. Jacob says, oh yeah, watch this. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs, and he set the faces of the flocks toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart, and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. For the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man, Jacob, thus Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. This is interesting, isn't it? Jacob sort of becomes this, this mad scientist, it seems. He's taking sticks from these trees. He's, he's peeling them back so the white bark is exposed. Puts the sticks in the area where the flock would breed. The flocks breed in front of the sticks. And out comes the speckled, spotted, and striped. Jacob separates his flock from Laban, and he's also very wise, Jacob is, and he makes sure that he's always breeding with the stronger of the animals. And what was Jacob thinking here? What was going through his mind? It's one of those questions you're going to love to ask in heaven. Jacob, what were you doing? Cambridge Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner provides one historical perspective. He says, quote, In displaying the striped rods at breeding time, Jacob was acting on the common belief that a vivid sight during pregnancy or conception would leave its mark on the embryo of the animal. Jacob's probably just following urban legend. 
he's probably just following superstition. Hoping that by putting these branches in a particular place at a particular time, he could manipulate the outcome, create the outcome as he wanted. But, you know, most Old Testament commentators and historians just say there's, there's no substance to it. There's no substance to it. In fact, Bruce Waltke, he's a Harvard Old Testament scholar, he actually says this. This is a stinger. He says, Jacob and Rachel are two of a kind. Both tarnish their faith with superstitious practices. Rachel uses mandrakes, and Jacob uses white magic. I don't know that Jacob would appreciate that, but that's what he said. So Laban cheats right away. He takes the flock that Jacob needs, and he puts it three days out. But Jacob goes and and works on the, the stick trick, whatever you want to call it, probably just being superstitious. And amazingly, Jacob's flock develops. And the scene closes, and Jacob is a rich man. We talk about a turn of events. The scene closes, and Jacob is a rich man. It says he even got camels. I mean, only really rich people had camels at this time. Again, God cares so much about making good on His promises. He will even use human sin and folly to do so. Three things I want to draw your attention to if you're a note taker. Number one, consider that God is indeed making good on His promise to Jacob. You know, it's funny, when you study the passage, some agree, I'd say many agree, Jacob's just being superstitious with his stick-waving antics. But everyone has to admit, somewhere along the road, it works. Something happened. Because the guy gets striped and speckled and spotted flock. You look at Rachel, she got the mandrakes. Did she get pregnant? Yeah, she did. What happened? It was the Lord. It was the Lord. God gave this outcome. Jacob and Rachel say so themselves. When Rachel has Joseph, she says, God has taken away my reproach. In chapter 30, verse 23, not the mandrakes, but God. Jacob says in chapter 31, when he's talking to his wives about his plan to leave, I'll probably be there next week studying it together. He says, God has been with me. And he's taken Laban's livestock and he's given it to me. I mean, Jacob himself acknowledges God has done this. And in chapter 31, Jacob actually recalls a dream that he had. And the dream, he says he had it during breeding time. So right around where we're reading. In the dream, the Lord said to him, Jacob, lift up your eyes. See all the striped and spotted flock. For I've seen what Laban has been doing to you. And I'm the God of Bethel. Jacob knows, Rachel knows, we know God did this. God brought this outcome. Look at how the scene closes. Verse 43. It says, Thus Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob increasing greatly, that phrase, that idea, is a fulfillment of what God promised in chapter 28 at Bethel. God promised, if you remember we read at the beginning, that Jacob's family would would spread abroad. There's this promise that Jacob's family is going to increase. His influence will increase. His possessions will. He'll be spread abroad. 
I mean, in a whirlwind of events, Jacob goes from being cheated and broke for 14 years. Now he's got 11 sons, offspring, and he's got camels and donkeys and servants. His possessions, his resources have increased. And not only that, but God's positioning Jacob for what? To go home. God is lining up everything he needs to so that Jacob can go home. Because he has the possessions he needs. He's about to head home. I mean, is God fulfilling his promise or what? He is. God cares so much about making good on his promises. Number one, consider that God is indeed making good on his promise to Jacob, right? Number two, consider how God is making good on his promises through human sin and folly. This is so counterintuitive to us. How will God make good on his promise for Jacob to increase and spread abroad? How will God do it if Laban takes all the speckled and spotted flock and moves them three days out? Will God be cheated by Laban? Some say, well, you know, Jacob would just have confidence in him. He, he could have figured it out. Well, you know, I don't, I don't exactly have confidence in Jacob. You know, he lied to his own dad. Um, he's got marital strife. He, you know, he's got a history of being a deceiver. I mean, if I was working in his business and I saw him out there waving sticks around, I'd be thinking, oh, geez, he's just like his wife. She's got mandrakes and, you know, they're just crazy. How will God make good on his promise to Jacob? Divine intervention is needed. And God delivers. And he does it all through the sin and the folly and the misguidedness of Jacob. Laban took the flock away, so God gives Jacob a miracle. God intervenes. God is with Jacob, so it works. Jacob's flock grows. The flock come out speckled. Just like last time when Jim preached on marital madness, it's through the family insanity that God gives offspring. He didn't do it around it, despite it, under it. It's through the insanity. It's through the marital madness that God makes good on His promises. So this time, God is working through the shenanigans of Laban and Jacob to increase His possessions, to give Jacob a flock, to spread him abroad, to position him to go back to Canaan. God is making good on His promises. He cares about fulfilling His promises so much, He'll even use human sin and folly to accomplish them. Lastly, number three, (laughs) this is good news for us that God works this way. Consider what these truths say to us about the character of our God. Consider what what it means to you, what it means to us as a church that God is a God who fulfills His promise and will do whatever it takes to make good on His promises even working through human sin and folly. Consider what this says to us about the character of our God. Rachel and Jacob are both misguided. Both struggle to trust God. Jacob's a deceiver in the past. He's sort of a a manipulator now. I mean, read through Genesis and find one good reason that man gives God to make good on his promises. Find one good reason that man has given the Lord to make good on His promises. 
Remember the picture that Jim gave us? God's grace takes on all comers. I mean, man has tried to do everything possible to derail God's promises. Jacob steals the firstborn blessing. He's a deceiver. Laban cheats Jacob out of the wife that Jacob wanted. Rachel gets her servant involved when she can't have kids. Rachel trades Jacob for mandrakes. Laban hides the speckled and spotted three days out. Jacob's waving sticks around in the breeding area. You know, when will it give? When will God's promises finally just fall off the horse and it'll just be all over? What's man got to do to derail him? But God's promises don't derail, do they? God blesses His people. God fulfills His promises. What does this say about the character of God? What does it say about God that He blesses the sinful? He blesses the misguided. He blesses the cheat. He blesses the deceiver. He blesses those who don't trust Him. If you're like me, you fall in every single one of those categories at some point. And that He's even willing and able to use the sin and folly in the lives of cheaters and deceivers and people who don't trust Him. He's even able to use the sin and folly in their lives for their good and for His glory. Friends, God is so gracious. If we step back from the life of Jacob, we step back from where we've been in Genesis, we can see God's character as bright as the sun. We know nobody like this, right? There's nobody whose character is this gracious and this merciful and this resolute, this redemptive. God uses human sin and folly, really, to accomplish His purposes. I mean, in a few chapters, we're going we're to read about Joseph. It's my favorite story in the whole Bible is Joseph. It's awesome. But God uses what Joseph said, man meant for evil, right? God meant for good. In other words, the, the very things that man meant for evil, being sold into slavery, being accused of adultery, those things are the things that God used for good. He didn't go and do anything else, didn't go around it. He's a gracious and redeeming God. That's his character. And so he uses those things for the good of Joseph and Joseph's family and all of us. That's the kind of God that we have. He's the kind of God who gives a gospel promise in the midst of judgment in Genesis 3. That's how gracious God is. Right after man has transgressed him, right after that, God gives a gracious promise of redemption. There's no one who has the character that our God has. My friends, what would it mean for our, our own lives if we believed that God was able to use even the most sinful, stupid, misguided things we've done or said for our good and for His glory? What would it mean for your life if you left today believing that? That's the character of God. What kind of hope would you have if you knew that God was using even the worst of circumstances? Maybe you've got Joseph-like circumstances. Maybe you've been cheated like Jacob was. What kind of hope would it give you this morning if you knew that God was using even those circumstances, as hard as they are, for your good and for His glory? I can tell you that it gives me fresh hope as a parent. Being a daddy's hard. 
It's a lot of fun. We have a ton of fun. But it's hard. There are moments when I bark at my son, Canaan, a three-year-old, you know, and I'm not gentle with him, I'm not understanding, I'm not patient with him. And I just feel like in those moments, I've completely blown it. And if you've been a parent, you know this, you just feel like you've ruined them. Like you've ruined everything, you've ruined their lives, you've ruined your own life because you're a bad parent now. You know, sanctification's not happening, I'm not changing. I'm going to be the one that just turns my own kids away from the Lord forever. And I fall into this trap thinking that God can't use my mistakes for good. I, I fall into this trap of just praying that, that God, Lord, just, just work, work despite me, work over me, work around me. And I'm really just communicating that. And I just don't trust that God can even use my mistakes as a parent. I assume that I'll never change. Sanctification's not happening. I've sat across from a lot of dads in this room since I've been here. Because I've been just so encouraged at seeing the dads' uh, relationship with their boys, with their sons. And I've had lunch with a few of you, and, and uh, you know, I've been asking a question. Just tell me, how are you getting close to your son? I see these relationships, and I see that, you know, your son trusts you, and it seems like you're having a ball, and you're sharing things about your life. It seems crazy to me. I mean, how, how are you doing this? And you know what you guys have told me? You've said, you know, it's really when I mess up, and I'm a bad dad, that God really seems to come in and do something dramatic. It's the moments where I sit down with my son and I say, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And I pray and, and ask God to change me. And you guys have been telling me, those are the crucial moments that God uses. And I'm thinking, wow. So God's using your mistakes as a parent to bring you closer to your kids. In what area of your life do you need to rest in God's gracious and redeeming character? What if we believe that God was able to use even the worst moments for good, our lowest moments, our darkest moments, our most embarrassing moments, our most sinful, stained moments? See, I can be a daddy not trying to be perfect because I know I'm not going to do it perfectly. I learned that in like 30 seconds after he was born. But I can trust in the character of God as a daddy. I know that God fulfills his promises. I know that God can even work through my sin and folly as a parent for the good of me, Cain and my three-year-old, and our family. Don't you see this in the life of Jacob? God is so powerful. His intentions for His people are so good. His providence is so perfect. He perfectly lines up every single thing and uses it his gracious promise just keeps pushing through. Right when you think it's over, it just keeps pushing through. His committedness to make good on his promises are so strong. He'll do whatever it takes. And he'll even use human sin and folly to accomplish his purposes. Doesn't that just want to make you trust him with your whole heart? That this is the character of our God? This is his makeup? This is his composition? This is what he is capable of. These are his intentions. Even from the Garden of Eden. My prayer is that we just fall into his arms and trust. We wouldn't live our lives wondering if every sin, every, sin, every mistake we make just ruins everything. God can't fulfill his promises and his purposes in our lives. That our many sins have somehow 
negated or taken back the work that God did in Christ. Ah, oh, we just trust His promises and really lift our eyes off of ourselves. Off of ourselves and what we're doing, what we're not doing, and put them on God and what He has done and on what He is doing and on what He's committed to do in our lives. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He promised that. And we learn from the life of Jacob, if he promised it, he's going to do it. You better believe it. He's going to do it. Worship team, you can, you can come on up now. Thanks. In closing, you see, God cared so much about making good on his garden promise of redemption, his chapter 3 promise. He cared so much about making good on his promise that one day the serpent would be defeated. He cared so much, he sent his only son. What we just celebrated. That's how much God cared about making good on his promise. He sent his only son. That's the extent to which God went to make good on his promises. And just like we've been seeing in Genesis, in the life of Jacob this morning, that it's God himself who ultimately sees his promises through. Man can't cheat it, can't cajole it, can't derail it. God will ultimately himself graciously, redemptively, powerfully push it through. Just like that, so in Christ, God saw our salvation through. Jesus did whatever it took, and it took His life to reconcile you to the Father. God's ultimate expression of providence, His ultimate expression of care for His people is found in Christ. The ultimate expression of doing whatever it takes to redeem is found in Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. Externally obedient to God, internally obedient to God. Not just all the right actions, all the right motivations. And He died in our place, on the cross, for our sins. The perfect spotless one, dying in the place of dirty, stained, sinful, Garden of Eden type sinners like me and you. And He rose again giving us victory and giving us hope and new life. When we see God's character displayed, fulfilling His promise to Jacob, when we see God's character displayed in sending Jesus, our hearts are drawn to Him with trust and affection. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, in every high and stormy gale, our anchor holds within the veil. When darkness seems to hide your face, where we rest on your unchanging grace, there are moments in Genesis, there are moments in Jacob's life, there are surely moments in our own life when darkness just seems to hide your face and we wonder what is going to happen. And we just pray this morning that by your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us a fresh picture of your character, of your goodness, your promise, your power, your ability. We just pray that would set us on a course for 2012, Lord, for the new year, the gaze off of ourselves and onto you. Off of ourselves and what we're doing, what we haven't done, and onto you and what you have done and what you've promised you will do in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Let's stand and sing together.